starting next Sunday, we'll uh, begin a series that will go a couple of months on Hope is Rising. It ties in uh, with our new worship project that Mark has written and our choir will do on the night. It's really our theme for our 60th anniversary that Hope is Rising, that as we celebrate 60 years as a church, it's just the beginning of what God has for us if Jesus tarries and leaves us here, what he wants us to do and what he wants us to be. So next week, uh, if you know folks in your community or in your family that need hope, uh, we're going to talk about what that looks like in a number of different passages of Scripture in the Old and New Testament. Uh, Friday night, we had about 200 ladies here for three hours for the cry out prayer event. There were uh, estimates of almost 200,000 women around America and in 29 countries that gathered in churches and in small groups to pray for revival and for God to work. And so God has just continued in this season. I'm not sure why, but in this season from uh, what happened in Dalton, Dalton a week ago and then in Refresh this past week with the crowd event and then First Baptist Albany is hosting a uh, one cry event uh, starting today through Wednesday night uh, at their church with a life action team. And so God has uh, given Albany, Georgia and this Southwest Georgia region an opportunity to have hope that he can bring revival if we're just paying attention. And so I look forward to uh, being at First Baptist some this week and hearing Ryan Loving, who's a friend of mine, Messianic Jew, who is uh, one of the preachers for life action and for one cry who's going to be speaking uh, with their team at First Baptist Church. Now tonight, in House of Prayer, we're going to give some of you the opportunity to share about what God said to you specifically uh, during Refresh. And so what we'll do at 515 in House of Prayer in the chapel will be give some folks an opportunity to just share a word about what God said to them, how, how God challenged you or or stretched you to seek the Lord. So I hope that you'll be here and be a part of that. Then tonight, we're going to do uh, Monday Morning Christianity, Ephesians chapter 4. How do we put what happens in here to work when we go to work and go to school? Uh, how does that work out? How does our faith in Christ and knowing who we are in Christ work itself out during the week in our day-to-day -day relationships and activities? So. Uh, today's a full day, and I'm excited about what God is going to do as we look at this last message in the God and King series, the revival under Josiah. Now, if you look at your notes, you'll remember that we began, all of this is hinged around 2 Chronicles 7:14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... Then will I hear from heaven, will heal their land and forgive their sin. So it's all built around what these kings did in remembering what God had said to Solomon that when people go astray, when people get offline, if you'll remember these things, God will once again show up. God will once again move. And God will give a season of revival and refreshing and awakening. On March 30th, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln issued a proclamation calling the nation to prayer and fasting. This is what he said. Insomuch as we know that by his divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world. May we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts 
that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power to confess our national sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. If you want to know how to tick God off, just be proud and arrogant. If you want to know how to get God's arms of love and grace and mercy wrapped around you, just humble yourself before God. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, if you know your Bible, you know these truths. First of all, God holds his people accountable. God holds his people accountable. We are accountable for what we do with what we have and what we know. God holds us accountable. The Bible tells us that there's going to be a day when we give an account of every deed done in the body. That we're going to stand before God and give an account of our lives. We individually will do that. We as Sherwood Baptist Church will do that. To give an account of what we did with all of our opportunities and all of our blessings and all of what God has done for us, we'll give an account. God holds us accountable to how we handle his grace and his mercy and his love and his forgiveness. Our response to God will be held into account. Number two, revival is a work of God from beginning to end. We cannot create revival. We cannot make revival happen, but we can position ourselves to cooperate with God in a work of revival so that when he chooses to move, we are ready for it and we avail ourselves to it. It is of God from beginning to end. There have been historical leaders of revival like these politicians, these kings. But in the end, it is all of God so that God gets the glory and God is magnified in revival. And then thirdly, repentance and humility go hand in hand. The unrepentant person is a person who's not humble before God. Saul would be an example, King Saul, of the unrepentant person. When confronted by his sin, he said, well, the people did it. He blamed somebody else. David said, I have sinned. The hardest words for us to say, three words, I have sinned. Repentance and humility go hand in hand. God is looking for humility. He's looking for a humble people and a humble nation. The verb is used 36 times in the Old Testament. Half the time it's used in a secular sense, that is of subduing armies or nations. That army was humbled, it was subdued. And half the time it's used in a sacred sense of humbling ourselves before God. Now, if you read your Bible and you have, you know that sometimes humbling ourselves in the Bible was sackcloth and ashes and tearing their clothes and, and weeping and fasting. And, and we don't put on sackcloth and ashes, but we certainly don't strut if we're humble. God expects leaders and people to be humble. Rehoboam, the first Judean king after Solomon, was warned by the prophet that God had abandoned him because he refused to humble himself before God. The result was, 2 Chronicles 12, the leaders of Judah and their king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is just. You see, humbling ourselves and turning to God are two sides of the same coin. It's almost a simultaneous act. It's like when Moses was in the wilderness and he saw the burning bush and he turned aside in the Hebrew. It is almost simultaneous, instantaneous. The minute Moses turned, God spoke. When we turn to the Lord in humility, at that moment, God begins to speak and God begins to work because he sees a humble heart 
in his people. Proverbs 22 and verse 4 says, The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. So turn, if you would, to 2 Chronicles 34. 2 Chronicles 34. Josiah came to the throne at a very early age. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem. He died when he was 39 years old. He did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Now, as I said in the message in this series Wednesday night, that when it says he, he was like his father David, David was not Josiah's father, but it is a picture of the kind of person that God was looking for, that he walked right before God. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, so he's 16 years old. He just got his license to drive a chariot. Uh, while he was still a youth, so before you say, well, you know, you know, 16 years old, I still got time to sow wild oats. I still got time to do whatever I want to do. I got plenty of time to serve the Lord. Here's a guy that comes to rule a nation at eight years of age and is doing the right things when he's 16 years of age. He began to seek the God of his father, David. And in the 12th year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram, the carved images, and the molten images. They tore down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and the incense altars that were high above them he chopped down. Also the ashram, the carved images, and the molten images, he broke in pieces and ground the powder and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. Then he burned the bones of the priest on their altars, these false priests, on their altars and purged Judah and Jerusalem in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, even as far as Naphtali, in their surrounding ruins. He also tore down the altars and beat the ashram and the carved images into powder and chopped down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Here's a young man who went on a war path against false worship. Here's a young man who did not stop by just trying to get his little community fixed up. He went around to the surrounding cities. He made sure people were getting right. He was rooting out idolatry. He sought the Lord early in his life. Proverbs 8, 17 says, Those who seek me early shall find me. Why do we care about what happens with children in this church? Why do we care about what happens with preschoolers and with young people? Because those who seek him early find him. By the way, that means that, you know, if you get saved when you're 13, you got a whole lot less to repent of than if you get saved when you're 35 or you're 55. You have a lot less regret. And so what, what do we try to do? We try to invest in the lives of children and young people so that at an early age, before their lives are scarred and marred by bad decisions over and over again, they see a relationship with Christ. Now, when Josiah comes to the throne, the 60 previous years have been bad years for the nation. They have neglected the house of God. They have completely forgotten the word of God. Idolatry has gained a foothold. He he has no role models. He has no mentors. His grandfather Manasseh ruled for 45 years and was an evil and wicked king. The nation had come under the, the overrun by the Assyrians. Only two years of his father, Amnon, had been king, and he was such a sorry king, his own servants killed him. It was a time of political corruption. It was a time of scandal and idolatry. God was basically removed from every house, from every courthouse. It, it would be as if you could go anywhere in America and there was no symbol of the presence of the holy God anywhere to be found. But everywhere you turn, 
There was a pole, there was an altar, there was a graven image to a false god that had been put up on every street, around every home, in every community, and God had been completely moved off the scene. You say, well, that will never happen in America. I've got some nations I can take you to and tell you it can. And it probably will, apart from revival. You see, until... Until the terrorists show up in our community and start killing people, most of us will not wake up to the reality of how desperate we should be. As long as it happens in Charlotte or in Chicago or somewhere else, and we can keep it at arm's length and turn our security systems on, we think it will never happen to us. That is a foolish decision in the mind of a foolish person. Because you cannot read the Bible and not know that a nation that forsakes God comes under the judgment of God. And we are a nation who is and continues to forsake God and to remove him and try to remove him from the conversation. Verse 2, he walked in the ways of his father David. As a child, his heart was tender toward God. He made wise choices and he, as they were repairing the house of worship, guess what they discovered? The Word of God. They discovered God's law, which is forgotten. As I said in a previous message, you know, uh, the Supreme Court ruled to take the law down off of schools, and so now we don't have. When I was growing up, you had the Ten Commandments posted up at the front. So every day while you're looking at the teacher in the third grade, thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not bear false witness. It was in King James, and in third grade I knew what that meant. Now, you don't see that. And we wonder why we have a biblically illiterate culture. Because there's no base from which people make moral and ethical decisions. You remove the Bible from the people of God... And then eventually there's a generation that knows nothing about what the Bible says. Josiah didn't leave anything undone. He purged the land of idols. He scattered the dust of the idols on the graves of the idolaters. He burned the bones of the false priests on their altars. By the way, uh, this verse is about to come up. This was a fulfillment of a prophecy that Josiah, before he ever existed, this is a prophecy of what's going to happen. 1 Kings 13.1 Now behold, there came a man of God from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense. He cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and on you he shall sacrifice the priest of the high places who burn incense on you and human bones shall be burned on you. Before you're ever born, God sent a prophet to say, you want to keep treating me like this? You want to keep ignoring my word? You want to keep offering yourself to false gods and false idols? I will raise up a son and he will burn your bones. Now, I know God is loving and God is gracious, but God hates sin. And there is no other God but the one true God, and he is a jealous God. Don't tick him off. This world is headed toward a judgment. Why? Because there was a prophecy that God was going to send a son. And that son was going to die on a cross and give his life for the sins of the world. And that one day he would return, the resurrected reigning Lord who sits at the right hand of the Father. One day he would return and this whole world is going to come under judgment. Right. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that, that God's going to say, now shame on y'all, y'all do better now. Or, Don't make me have to come back here again. It means that God is going to wipe this world clean. And all who have opposed him, and all who have denied him will spend eternity in a place called hell. And all who have followed him will spend eternity in a place called heaven. 
I don't know about you, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out, I don't want to be under the judgment of God. I would just as soon let my judgment have fallen on Jesus and I embrace the fact that he took my judgment upon himself so that I wouldn't have to face that judgment and spend eternity with him. It is the foolish man who says in his heart, there is no God. By the way, every fool has a day he can take off. It's called April Fool's Day. And these foolish priests thought that in the land of God, a land that had a covenant with God, a land that had a relationship with God, they could do whatever they want and act however they wanted to act and burn incense and build false idols. But the man who seeks God will never stop until he has totally addressed the situation of idolatry. Secondly, God expects his word to be honored. In verses 14 through 28, they discover the law. Chapter 34, it says in verse 14, the priests found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Verse 21, go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book which has been found for great, notice this, you ought to underline this in your Bible. This is a word for the United States of America in 2016 for great is the wrath of the Lord which has been poured out on us because our fathers have not observed the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book now all he had probably was maybe the book of Job some of the Psalms and the first five books. We've got the whole thing. I mean, we got the whole Bible. And every Sunday, we pick up Bibles and lost and found for people that don't even care enough to, to pick up their Bible when they leave church. And after about a you know, few months, we go give 30, 40, 50 Bibles. Uh, go give them away because nobody even bothers. Listen, when somebody's name is on a Bible, <laughs> just a warning. When your name is on a Bible and it sits here for three months, it tells everybody that walks by that stack what you think about your Bible. How valuable is the Word of God to you? How valuable is the Word of God to do? You see, to not do what God says is worse than not knowing what God has said. It's not that we don't know, it's that we don't do. To, to not do what God says is worse than not knowing what God said. They didn't know. It, it had been so long since anybody had heard the reading of the Word that they didn't know what the Word said anymore. Verse 29, Then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. Now I want you to notice the word all and how many times it appears. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the Levites, and all the people, from the greatest to the least, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. The king read it. Now, if it was the first, just the first five books, they're all standing there. Everybody in Jerusalem has gathered, maybe 20,000, 30,000 people. Everybody in Jerusalem has, has gathered there, and they're standing there to hear the king read the word of God. That's about 10 hours. You given 10 hours to the word of God in the last month? They stood and listened. Why? They'd never heard it before. It was like news to them. C.E. Autry in the Revivals of the Old Testament says, The Bible has survived the indifference of its friends, the ravages of time, and the willful plans of Satan. There's supposed to be a slide up. The Bible will survive. Of this we have no doubt. But will the generation that loses knowledge of it? The Bible will survive. But will the generation that loses knowledge of it? That's why Deuteronomy says that we are in the gates and in our homes to teach our children the Word of God because if we don't, you can't depend on anybody else to do it. That the church has to do it. The home has to do it. Why? Because we live in a nation that won't do it. 
We ask God to bless America. We, in presidential speeches, in campaign speeches, God bless America. And yet, we have people that don't even know what the Bible says asking God to bless America. God has conditions for his blessings. And his conditions begin with humility, that we humble ourselves before God. God is looking for humble people. Look at verse 31. Then the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord. Now he's read the word. And so he says, in light of what God has said, this is what I'm going to do. He made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant written in this book. Moreover, he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand with him. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Then it goes on and it tells that he went in all the land and made all who were present serve the Lord. The word all, verses 29 through 33, appears 11 times in the Hebrew. Now, here's what it means in Hebrew. It means all. It means that if Josiah had been pastor of this church, that when, when he said all the members of Sherwood will come, it means all. It means all. We're going to get everybody there. From the greatest to the least, all are going to come. All means all. Now, not everybody, I'm sure, came willingly because a lot of those people had been offering to false idols. They'd been offering to false gods. They had been sacrificing to false gods. But he led by example and said, this is what we're going to do. We are a nation in covenant with God. We are a people set aside by God. We were the least of the least, and God blessed us. We have forgotten his law, and we're going to come together whether you like it or not. That's what leaders do, by the way. Leaders don't walk around going, which way is the wind blowing? Okay, I'll go over here with this group for a while. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. This group over here got my attention over here. And leaders don't say one thing to one group and go to another town and say another thing to another group. Biblical leaders say the same thing to everybody. Amen. Humble leaders say the same thing to everybody. Proud leaders who care more about their reputation than they do about the Word of God say what people want to hear. Now, what's it going to take for you to get my vote? Just tell me what it is, and I'll tell you that's what I'm going to do. No, what's it going to take for you to get my vote? You just tell me what it is, and that's what I'll do. That's not what Josiah did. He said, first of all, I'm going to burn the bones of all the false priests. I'm going to knock down all the altars. Now, have I gotten everybody's attention? Everybody get here. We're going to read the Word of God, and this is what I'm going to do. Now, I know. <laughs> I can read between the lines. I know not everybody was happy about this. And can I tell you, quite honestly, not every member of Sherwood Baptist Church would be happy if we had a revival. Because some of you, the Spirit of God would get so thick, you'd have to run out the building instead of run to the altar. I, I know not everybody wants it. I know not every member of this church wants to see a mighty move of God. I understand that. But it's not going to keep me from saying all need to be a part of it. And we don't need to bail out on this. You see, there are always people who like to be around the things of God but have never given themselves to the things of God. Now, would that describe you today? There are always people who like to be around the things of God. I tell you what, man, I love those songs. We start clapping. I don't know if I clap on one and three or two and four, but I just love them. I just love those things. We start clapping, and woo, dinner on the grounds. Pastor Ken, praise God for Pastor Ken. We're going to eat at dinner on the grounds. I'm going to go and I'm going to get 14 helpings. I'm going to put 12 rolls in my pocket. I'm going to eat. I'm going to steal grandma's dessert. Go put it in my car so I've got it later on. I like that. Hey, we need to gather together and pray. You know, Pastor, I've been real busy and I'm real tired. My grandkids are here and, and you know, my, my kids have got games and i got all this kind of stuff. There, there are people that like to be around the things of God. They like the energy in the room but they've never given themselves to the things of God. 
You see, it's not how high you jump, it's how straight you walk when you land. I mean, you can get excited in four days of refresh. I mean, if refresh doesn't excite you, I need to tell you that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I mean, if you can't get excited about that, then, then I'm just going to tell you, you're lost. Right. You're not just indifferent, you're lost. If you, if you, but, you know, some people come, come to refresh. You know, I like it, man, when the choir's there and we do these big numbers and everybody stands up. Man, I love that. But have you given yourself to the things of God? It's one thing to stand on the outside and look at it and say, that is great, that is awesome, and never buy the T-shirt. Or it's another thing to buy the T-shirt but never live up to what the T-shirt says. You ever walked around town and seen people wearing Christian t-shirts acting certain ways and you think, I'd like to give them another t-shirt to wear because they're killing me. They're embarrassing me. You see, it's one thing to like it. It's another thing to love the God that it represents. And that's what he is doing here. He, his confession led to cleansing and it wasn't a shallow cleansing. Now here's a, here's a word of warning Look at verse 27. Josiah will be killed in battle at age 39. And I don't want you to miss this because I think this could have application to us. 2 Chronicles 34, 27. God is speaking because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants. And because you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather... He's about to tell him he's going to die. Behold, because you did all this, you humbled yourself. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace so your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place and on its inhabitants. Now let's put this in the context of history. The nation was on the decline. After David and Solomon, the nation had been divided into Israel and Judah. There were wicked kings. There were seasons of revival. But the nation was moving into apostasy. It was moving into anarchy and apostasy. They were sacrificing their children. Say, well, we don't do that in America today. Yeah, we do. We just call it abortion. We're still sacrificing our children. The nation was in apostasy. It was weak. It did not have the power, the military might, to overcome the enemies that were approaching it on all sides. It was a laughingstock. But it was at times interrupted with revivals under Asa and Hezekiah and Josiah. It did not mean that God had not already decided that judgment was coming. It was coming, but God gave seasons of revival and refreshing between the coming judgments to say to the people, I'll show you what it could be. But your forefathers made too many decisions in the wrong direction, and this is where it's going. There's going to be judgment. We know that that judgment ends in Malachi when God is silent for 400 years before Jesus is born. Man in his heart is bent toward rebellion. We never seem to learn. Descendants of Adam and Eve didn't learn anything. I mean, you'd think Adam and Eve every day said to their kids, now boys... Don't make a mistake of rebelling against God because you should have seen where we used to live. You would think the children of Israel, after watching their firstborn males be killed and after watching them be beaten in slavery and be delivered miraculously by God and crossing the Red Sea, you would think whatever God said to them, they'd do. But all they did was murmur and complain. They forgot. Oh, we'd rather go back into slavery again. Can you imagine anybody that's been a slave, born into slavery, generations of slave, hundreds of years, and all of a sudden they're delivered and they say, you know what, let's go back to that. 
but they forgot the blessings of God. Noah's family forgot the blessings of being delivered out of the flood. We can forget the great moves of God in our lives personally or corporately and go right back into evil. The point is not that they forgot. The question is, why do we forget? We have a completed Bible. We have a cross. We have a resurrected Christ. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have the stories of revival. And yet it seems that the only way a nation ever learns to turn to God is in hard times and judgment. Man's natural movement is not toward godliness and humility. Our natural movement is just to drift away from God. And God's nature is to give grace to the humble. Now where do we want to be? Do we want to be in a season? I mean, God, Josiah loved God so much that God let him die in peace so that he did not have to see the destruction that was coming. Do we want to live in a season of peace in our land? Because, you know, revival would fix all this stuff that's going on in our cities. It would at least push back the darkness some. Do we want to live in peace? Do we want to live with the blessings of God? Do we want to live with the favor of God? Do we want to live with an awareness of the atmosphere is filled with the presence of God in our church, in our homes, in our community? Second Chronicles 7.14, we have to humble ourselves and pray, turn, seek, humble ourselves. It's all tied to revival. When Bob Bakke was here this past week, uh, he shared on uh, Tuesday night and then on Wednesday morning about the Second Great Awakening. And if you were here Tuesday night and Wednesday morning, you saw the incredible parallels between what was going on in America, the, the, just the desperation of the times, almost paralleling where America has been for the last 10 or 15 years, maybe the last 30 years, right down the track. Real estate collapse financial collapse, terrible elections, all just, I mean, we're walking down that same path. But then God showed up in a revival. And it happened because of people humbling themselves and praying. So I want you to see this three-minute clip, and then I want to walk you through something. Well, Whitfield back, comes back a second time to preach several months later. And he finds that the entire uh, town of Campbell's Lane, the climate, the spiritual climate has changed. It's been transformed. He preaches again. And there is a great move of God there. Well, he's, he's invited then a third time to come back and preach the sacrament in 1742. And when he comes back a third time to preach the sacrament, there's only about 2,000 families or 2,000 people in, in the entirety of the county surrounding Campbell's line. When he comes back to preach the sacrament in 1742, 30,000 people show up. And when he preaches, there is a move of God that is so extraordinary. It's like, well, it's like a, a, a spiritual Hiroshima. Boom! It goes off in the heart of, of Scotland. And it, in fact, is the largest ingathering of those of communicants into the table of the Lord in the history of the Scottish church. Well, McCullough, though he's not a great preacher, he's no dummy. He starts putting two and two together, right? A great man comes to my parish, he preaches. People come to me and they say, let us pray. I put them into prayer. I put them into concerted prayer, into a, prayers of agreement that God would pour out his spirit upon, upon us. And in response to concerted prayer, this God moves and boom, this explosive work of the Holy Spirit in our midst. Duh. Well, he gets the, parish, the various churches throughout um, 
that region of Scotland to start agreeing. And in 1742, they come up with a covenant. It was called the Concert of Prayer, a two-year covenant that they would uh, mobilize their churches together. Regardless of where they were, every, uh, they would begin praying on Saturday night for the preaching of the gospel every morning. Every individual was asked to, to come into this covenant to pray on Saturday nights, in e either in small societies or individually, for the outpouring of God's Spirit the next day, on the preaching of the gospel the next day, that every fortnight then there would be a, these prayer meetings that would be going on, and once a quarter then, churches of like mind would bond together to pray on these quarterly meetings for the outpouring of God's Spirit and revival of true religion. In your uh, worship folder, there's a card called Concerts of Prayer. And before you uh, fill it out, let me just walk you through it for a minute. Concert means agreement. It's uh, Bob used the illustration of when the conductor taps the podium, that means to the symphony, you're to all now tune in, harmonize, agree. So here's what I'm asking you to do this morning. For the last three years, uh, Bill Eliff, Tom Eliff, now Bob Bakke, others have spoken into the life of this church and said that we need extraordinary prayer in the times in which we live. And whatever extraordinary prayer is, it is more than we are currently doing. And so we need to do that. So out of this seek emphasis in Refresh and today, I want us to take a step toward extraordinary prayer. Now here's what I'm asking you to do. Uh, there's no guilt in this. There's no shame in this. Just, I'm just asking you to step up to the plate before your God and King and to do this. First of all, I will pray every night for the preaching of the gospel that will happen on Sunday. No prayer, no power. Little prayer, little power. More prayer, more power. Great prayer, great power. I will pray every Saturday night or Saturday during the day. That means simply I'm asking you not just when you sit down to eat supper on Saturday night and the Lord bless the services tomorrow in Jesus' name, amen. I'm asking you to pray specifically. I'm asking you to pray for lost people to be saved, for people that are not in fellowship with God to get right with God. I'm asking you to pray that God would draw people into this fellowship that need to be a part of it. I'm asking you to pray that when we gather in this place, when you get out of your car, you sense and know that God's presence is on this place when we come together. Now, we need to take seriously what we do on Sunday, so that begins in our preparation on Saturday. So praying. And the first thing I, I would ask you to pray for is, Lord, I need you to speak to me when the Word of God is proclaimed tomorrow. You, you can always list everybody else that God needs to talk to. But Lord, I need you to speak to me first. So that's the first thing. Secondly, I'm interested in gathering with others in my Sunday school class for smaller prayer gatherings. Here's what we're asking for. The prayer group leaders in Sunday school classes that at least once a month, if not, if you can't do it every other week like they did during the Campbell's Lang revival and during the Second Great Awakening, at least once a month, after a fellowship, if you're, if you're doing a hot dog cookout, at the end of that, you end it with a time of prayer. This is not a time of prayer for Sister Susie's ingrown toenails. This is a time of prayer specifically in your class for revival and awakening and a move of God in our church and in this community and in every church that names the name of Jesus Christ. Now, you could do that by once a month. Your class is going to try to come to House of Prayer as a class and pray together for what God would do in your class and through your influence. Or you might meet at somebody's class if, in, in a morning and have, a, have coffee and pray together in the morning. But finding a time in your class when you are gathered together However many can do it. This is not, if you have 50 in your class, you have to have 50 show up to pray or it's not successful. This is about people that God gives a heart to pray. Okay? 
that seriously want to pray for this church and for the ministry of this church and for revival. Thirdly, I commit to attend House of Prayer at 515 on Sunday afternoon. Now, I know sometimes that's hard, and you may not can make it every week, but would you make it a part of your schedule that you will come and pray and intercede? Now, as I said earlier, we're, we're going to have testimonies tonight from what's happened during Refresh. There's some things that God's putting in my heart about what we need to do for House of Prayer, and, and I'm not ready to share all that yet, but, I mean, there are just some things that I think we need to do for extraordinary prayer to go on in House of Prayer leading up to our worship experience. But I, I will commit to attend House of Prayer. I'll participate in a quarterly concert of prayer. We've had two of those this year. We had two on Sunday nights concerts of prayer. Now, in those days, they got all the churches together. We know that a lot of churches don't have church on Sunday night in our community. We just do because we're New Testament. But uh, anyway, we have church on Sunday night. But we're either going to do this on a Sunday night or a Wednesday night. We're going to get together in a couple of weeks with the staff and figure out the best time, whether it's the first Sunday of every quarter or the first Wednesday of every quarter, where we don't do anything else except a concert of prayer. And what we're going to start with, because we have so many, I've been meeting with about 10 pastors over the last few months across the African-American and the predominantly white churches. We've been meeting together and talking about what God needs to do in this community. And it may be, because some of them have never done a concert or prayer, that we will invite some of them to come and just share how we can pray for their church. And we'll gather and pray over them. Because when the tide comes in, all ships rise. And every church in this town, every church that preaches the word of God in this town could have a thousand new people next Sunday and this town would still be predominantly lost. So it's, it's not, we're not in competition. We're in partnership seeking God for revival. So uh, we're going to have concerts of prayer to seek God for revival. So remember, all of this agreement in prayer is about the church and revival and obedience and our surrender to God. And then I would like to be added to the pastor's 200 praying men. By the way, there are people that are not men on that list now. Okay? I would like to be added to that list. Now, let me tell you what that list is not. Almost every week, at least three weeks out of four, I send out an email. Here's what I'm preaching on. Here's where we're going. Here's what I believe God did last Sunday. Sometimes I put that in. And then I put some thoughts about prayer or revival on that. This is not an email. Don't sign up for this if you think, now I'm going to be get some inside information so I can be in the know. The only reason to sign up for it is that you are committing to add more time to prayer for the things that I put on that list. Not just say, well, Lord, here's the email. You do what, what Michael's asking us for. This is for you to commit more time to prayer. So what we need is your name, your cell phone number, your email, your Sunday school class and teacher, so we can tell the Sunday school teacher and the prayer group leader who in their class has signed up for this. So I'm going to give you a minute or two uh, to fill this out, and then in just a minute or so, our ushers will come, and we're going to take a prayer offering this morning. By the way, this offering could be the biggest offering we've ever taken. We're going to take a prayer offering of our commitment to pray. So as you fill this out, you check what you can, what you believe you can commit yourself to, and let's go another step in our praying for God to send revival, in our humbling ourselves before God. By the way, just even doing this is a humbling before God because it says we can't fix what's wrong. We can't change it. Only God can change it. Remember what I said at the beginning of the message, revival from beginning to end is a work of God. So only God can do this. Only God can do this. So I'm asking you to join me in us taking another step of prayer to focus on Saturday night on praying. You say, well, you know, I looked at the schedule and next week my alma mater is playing on Saturday night. Then pray on Saturday morning. 
find some time on Saturday to pray specifically for the worship services of this church and what God does. Whoever's preaching, whatever songs are being sung, that God would be glorified and decisions would be made every time. I don't know if you, you remember, I, wanted, I can't even remember who said it now, but when Spurgeon preached, he had a prayer room underneath him. It was called the boiler room. And there were 300 men underneath there praying. And you couldn't see it in that room that seated 10,000. But when Spurgeon felt that there was a battle going on in the room and the enemy was attacking or that the spirit, the sense of the presence of God was waning, Spurgeon would start stomping the floor and it would say to those people in that prayer room, get your praying up. Get your praying up. By the way, folks, the devil's in this room. Fighting resisting, telling you it's not important, and telling you it's all going to work out in the end. He's the father of lies. And he seeks to kill and steal and destroy. We need to step up our praying. Gathering with Sunday school classes, house of prayer, quarterly concert of prayer. By the way, our next concert of prayer is the Sunday night before the election. That's a good time to gather to pray. Lay aside your ballot and get, get on your knees and let's pray and seek the Lord. Because only the Lord's going to fix this mess. And then if you'd like to be added to the list. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask our ushers to uh, come and collect these cards. And then they're going to bring them here to the altar. All right, let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus. We humble ourselves before you. We are a people in great need. We have no answers. We have no solutions. We have no fixes. For the junk that's going on in this world, unless your Holy Spirit divinely moves in our midst, in our lives individually, and in our church collectively. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would take us to another level in our praying. I thank you for the historic prayer emphasis of this church and the people that have prayed and covered me and this church for decades. But Lord, there is much more land to be taken. There are greater things to be done in this city. So I pray that we would take seriously this call to bow before you and to carve out time in our schedules to be serious about humbling ourselves and praying and seeking your face. In Jesus' name.